this is black guy, white guy talking. I'm a black guy. I'm Elwin. I'm a white guy. I'm Zach. And we became friends by talking, talking about race and race relations. This episode was recorded on October 8th, 2020. Our distinguished guest tonight is the poet John Murillo. His first collection, Up Jumped the Boogie, was a finalist for both the Kate Tufts Discovery Award and the Penn Open Book Award. His honors include a Pushcart Prize, two Larry Neal Writers Awards, the J. Howard and Barbara M.J. Wood Prize from the Poetry Foundation, and fellowships from the National Endowment for the Arts, the Breadloaf Writers Conference, Fine Arts Work Center in Provincetown, the McDowell Colony, the Wisconsin Institute for Creative Writing. His poems have appeared in many journals and anthologies, including American Poetry Review, Poetry, and Best American Poetry. His new collection, just out this year from Four Way Books, is called Contemporary American Poetry. Welcome, John. Hey, thanks for having me. Yeah, well, we appreciate you talking with us tonight. At the heart of your new collection is your powerful poem, A Refusal to Mourn the Deaths by Gunfire of Three Men in Brooklyn. You said you wrote this poem in part as a reflection on police community relations since the 1992 uprisings and partly as a response to what happened in New York in 2014 with Ishmael Brinsley killing two NYPD police officers and then turning the gun on himself. The, his attack on the officers was more motivated by the rash of police killings of unarmed black people nationwide. And as yep. you said, coincidentally and meaningfully, I think, while Brinsley was carrying out his attack, poets were gathered in New York's Washington Square Park to read poems in protest of these killings. Yeah. I, I wonder if you could talk a bit about this poem. Absolutely. You know, it was December. I remember this, 2014, the coldest day of the year up to that point. And we had this really huge rally here. A lot of New York City-based poets, a lot of famous poets came out. And because it was such a cold day, after a while, I noticed that there were only other poets there listening to ourselves. You know, it was well-meaning. It, it was a nice gesture. You know, we wanted to do something, right? But it really felt impotent. It felt like an empty gesture that we performed just to feel like we were doing something. So I remember feeling that way leaving the park. And I remember also that on the way home, there was this really, really heavy police presence in the city on various subway platforms all the way back uh, into Brooklyn. I was living in uh, Crown Heights at that time. You know, I got to the house and I went, like the poem says, you know, I went to the uh, to the corner store to get a black and mild and the, the guy behind the counter had a TV on and we found out that the, this uh, what Brinsley had done. I have to say, my first emotion was this weird mix of everything, man. Mm. Uh, grief, mm. happiness, sorrow, guilt, mm. you know, all that. So the poem was me really processing that because in, in poems, but also in most forms of media, there is no place for black or brown people to place their rage. Right. You know, if you look at the way we're depicted in a lot of movies, the one noble characteristic or the characteristic that makes one noble is grace, forgiveness. Right. These things. Mm -hmm. So I wanted to write into that space, that conflicted space that I was feeling. And it, and it took a while, you know, that's why the poem's so long, because then when I'm writing about that, I'm also writing about how I felt in 92 when Roddy Key got beat in 91 and then the, uh, the riots ensued in 92. Mm -hmm. And I'm also writing now as, if not an elder, at least an older person with my own students, my own young people who are looking to me for counsel and having to give them answers that I just didn't have. So the, the mm -hmm. poem was my attempt to kind of, if not answer those questions, 
questions, at least raise some of them for myself. John, this is Elwin. Um, how you doing, brother? Brother. You know, as I, I, I have to admit, I'm not a, a poem reader. Sure. I've by, by reading your poems, I find myself like, you know, it's hard for me to like stay focused on certain things when I'm when I'm reading. But when I'm uh-huh. reading your poems, I find myself being like just being like trapped in the words kind of. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? And, and I feel sure. like it becomes vivid for me my experience sure, of what sure. I'm reading. And even in going over this, especially reading this poem, it has made me check how this poem was referenced. And then mm-hmm. when I realized where it was referenced from, I was actually making more of a connection to what's happening today. And yeah. as I was mm-hmm. reading and I was like, this man has some foresight. You're like on point with it because today it feels like all of this that's going on the chaos that's going on Mm -hmm. i feel like that's what i was reading Mm -hmm. i mean i feel like i was reading about the present chaos yeah absolutely but here's the thing though brother wrote this poem about something that happened in 2014 and also something that happened in 92 and everything that's happened between right Mm -hmm. and the book comes out in 2020 and then all hell breaks loose right this poem in particular has been getting a lot of attention because of the Mm -hmm. global protest to the george floyd killings the brianna taylor killings right Mm -hmm. but here's the thing it's not that i had any foresight it's that i could have written this poem at any point and it would be right on time right because this is something that never stops right stays relevant Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's I think more of a commentary on the state of things than it is, you know, any appreciation on my part. Right. The, in my first book, I have this poem that's about my father and I coming home from the movie theater, and we get pulled over by police. Mm-hmm. And when I would read that poem, you know, I would dedicate. I'd say I'm dedicating this poem to Oscar Grant. Or I'm dedicating this poem to Prince Jones Jr. And every year, the the list either got longer, or I would just add new. You see what I'm saying? I would dedicate yeah. it to someone new, or just add more names. You're right. You know, the thing is, I can read either of these poems five years from now, and unless something really drastic changes, it'll be right on time again. Right, right. And I I love that. And I I feel like what Elwin's speaking to is that you're a poet of witness. Yes, absolutely. Uh, In your Q&A with the Poetry Society of America, you said that you write, first of all, in the tradition of witness. You know, I I feel that in your poems, so many of them are so deeply personal. And part of their power is that they come from this place of witness. You're mining your own memories and your own history. And, you know, for instance, in the poem you mentioned, or I think it was the one you were mentioning, Enter the Dragon, Mm -hmm. you know, which appeared in your first collection, you recall going to see the Bruce Lee movie with your father back in 76 and how right. after the movie, you and your father got pulled over by the police. Could you talk a little bit about what it means to you to write in the tradition of the witness? Sure. Poetry of witness is a term that was popularized by the poet Carolyn Forche. And what it means typically, or at least the way that I interpret it, is it's a place where the personal and the political meet, right? So it's just what you're saying. It's Mm. not just writing um, about things that are happening outside your window, but also how that affects you, how you're living, and in some way participating mm-hmm. in what's going on, right? You know, for me, I'm just writing, even when I'm, when I'm not trying to write politically, if I'm writing a poem about, let's say, chopping vegetables in the kitchen with my mother, yeah, you know, the selection of vegetables we have mm. is political, mm-hmm. right? The kind of cutlery we're using, the kind of cutting board, if we have a cutting board, mm. all that speaks to socioeconomic realities. So the thing about poetry of witness, I feel at least, if you're writing from an honest and authentic place, mm-hmm. and that you come from a certain place, it's going to bear out in, in the language. 
Yeah, I feel that. You know, it's really a, a more realistic way to connect. And I think that's probably why I am experiencing it that way. Because when you're writing that way, as far as like as a witness, it makes you more connected to what's being conveyed. Mm, in, in your mm. message i think that's the reason why it's more vivid mm. to me and uh coming back to um a refusal to mourn the deaths on the second sonnet where it says again this week they killed another child who looked like me a child will march about who grace our placards so say then be forgotten like a trampled pamphlet when I'm reading that, what comes off for me is, unfortunately, I don't know if this is was supposed to be or what your intent was in being conveyed, but it feels like a lot of the angst that's built up within the black community, it feels like black on black crime. I know it may be more related to marching after something has happened to a, a black person or it feels like when people are in anguish after something bad has happened but mm -hmm. i also feel like it is something that happens when in a black community we're faced with this violence towards each other and like if somebody dies today it's almost like nobody cares and they've forgotten tomorrow mm. you understand what i'm saying it's yeah it happens the same when police officer kills a black person. You know, we get up in arms and, sure. but when it happens with us, you know, we're upset, but I just wanted to get an idea of what your viewpoint was on that or what your thought process was when you, when you were writing that. That's a good question. I think for me, one, going back to a point you made earlier about maybe not being an avid reader of poetry, but finding something in this book that you could kind of grab a hold of, mm -hmm. right? image-wise, that's dope, man, because that's ultimately what I want in my work, right? I want my poems to reach people. I don't know, when people say that they don't like poetry, that's not what you're saying, but I'm saying in general, when people say that, mm -hmm. what I'm hearing is they haven't found the poets that are right for them. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it's like saying you don't like music or you don't like film. You may not like some music, but there's, there's something out there for you. So I thank you because I want to be the poem for you. I want you to be able to read this and get something from it. No, thank you. Uh, Honestly, like I mean it. I'm very sincere about this stuff. It's a connection that I like it to be in limbo with my thought mm -hmm. process so I can think about it even more. Right. You know I mean, right. I don't want it to just be a conclusion. I'm fortunate enough to be able to talk to the person who is writing this. So, right. you know, I can see what your standpoint is on it. I'm thinking a lot of different things to it, but I'm sorry to mean to cut you off. I just wanted to. No, 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 but but no, and I appreciate that. But that's the thing, right? You know, like with good art, you get that first layer of pleasure, right? Mm -hmm. It's like an album you come back to again and again. You might not even hear the vamps, you know, coming in at this point. You may not hear that, you know, there's something happening with a cowbell over there. But the more you listen to it, the more you get out of it. So, so that's what's up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. But in the, in this particular poem, right, those lines you mentioned very much had to do with the way that we get excited about the cause of the moment, and typically this cause has a face and a name. And we carry that around for a while, but then, you know, we're back to our daily grind. You know, mm -hmm. we, we've forgotten about this person, right? Yep. And, it, and it's, it's going to happen with both George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, mm -hmm. right? Next year, because either uh, someone else will have replaced them, or I don't know, maybe people feel dejected and like their protests don't matter much or something. But for whatever mm -hmm. reason, you know, people move on. So in this poem, you know, I'm talking about a child will march about, right, who grace our placards and then be forgotten like a trampled pamphlet. Actually, that image is something that stayed with me. I mentioned Prince Jones Jr. earlier. I'm not sure if you know about him. ta wrote about him in uh, Between the World and Me. Mm -hmm. But we were all in school together. I went to Howard with both those dudes. I did not 
not know Prince Jones Jr. I met him once, but uh, did not know him. You know, when he was killed, for the uh, listeners who don't know, Prince Jones Jr. was a young man who was, if I'm getting this right, followed across state lines one night, either from Maryland through D.C. to Virginia or vice versa. And when he saw that he was being followed, he pulled into his neighborhood, but didn't pull onto his own street because he didn't know what was happening. So he pulled off to this other street. This guy got out of the car, approached him with a gun. He didn't know what was happening. So he um, charged him with his car. The guy shot into his car a a million times Mm. and killed Prince Jones Jr. Mm. So there was this big protest that happened in D.C. around that time. And we marched on the Department of Justice, Al Sharpton was there, you know, the whole the whole parade. And at some point, I remember Sharpton on a microphone or bullhorn saying something about, we're going to march around this building seven times, like the walls of Jericho, and we're going to make these walls tumble, blah, blah. And after the third or fourth trip around the, the building, my feet are getting tired, and I'm like, yo, this is stupid. Nothing, you know, like, mm-hmm. ain't no walls tumbling, you know what I mean? Yeah. And I remember looking down and seeing his face on one of these flyers. And someone had just, you know, stomped all over. And I wasn't even writing poetry then, mm. but that's an image that stuck with me. And, and to your point, it is kind of a black-on-black violence. Mm-hmm. I resist that term because, you know, it, really, you, you you commit violence against people who are close to you, right? Mm-hmm. So there's white-on-white violence, there's Korean-on-Korean violence, it's you commit violence against your neighbor. But in this sense, if we look at the word violence, it's a violate. Right. By taking someone's image and using it for the moment and then forgetting about them, that is something of a violation. Yes, it is. In a way, we do a violence when we we just spend a little bit of time with these people's names and then don't follow through with anything. And you know what? I think that a lot of times we don't really understand the magnitude of the moment. And I don't want to be insensitive to anyone or any any families that are a part of this vicious cycle. But at the same time, we wind up being the carriers like we pass this information along. Sometimes when these things happen, we talk about it like, oh, you know, this is a bad thing. But it winds up being like conversation pieces. And we're talking about people's lives that sure. that are lost now. Mm-hmm. And we're also talking about the families, even kids we have when Philadelphia, we're at like 300, I don't know, 65, 66 murders in the city right now. And that's, that's a conversation piece now. Now we're talking about numbers that are going up, right? We're just, we're sure. talking about it as if it's, you know, like we are desensitized to it almost, right? And there's a bunch of families that are ripped apart and they're going to probably decorate trees with like little stuffed animals. Sure. You know what I mean, and then, and then whoever was the perpetrator, they'll be in jail and then they'll be forgotten about. So we're talking about a vicious cycle. And, but then the people that are left, the people that can make us think about it are us. We make it, but we do it temporarily. Like mm-hmm. we don't do it to the point where it actually becomes something where it's significant enough where change can actually happen. Sure. You understand what sure. I'm saying? Yeah. So. Mm-hmm. I think that's, you know, when we talk about poetry of witness, I think that's another part of it, right? Is right. Well, a couple things. One, by putting a face and a story Mm-hmm. and some texture to the event, it keeps it from becoming just numbers, just statistics, right? right. Mm-hmm. So it becomes something real. And then the other part is, you know, you're documenting. So now this book exists, let's say, mm. and hopefully it will exist for a while. Yep. So whoever picks this up, they're going to say Ishmael Brinsley's name. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Right? For, yeah. for better or worse. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and picking up, 
back on Ishmael Brinsley, um, I keep thinking about the conflicted feelings you mentioned having earlier when you heard the news about Ishmael Brinsley. In your conversation with Ben Perkett that was published in Guernica last year, you talked about its importance to you that the speakers in your poems are complex and complicit. You said sure. you've got no use for blameless characters or anybody beyond reproach. Could you mm -hmm. speak to that? We're complex mm -hmm. and complicated and we're flawed. I was talking to a friend yesterday, um, Mary Baraka. I think it might have been his birthday or uh, we're around the time of his birthday. Mm -hmm. And Baraka, he had his sexist moments. He had his homophobic moments. He sure. had his anti-Semitic moments, right? Right. All this. But over time, you know, given time and given the chance, mm -hmm. he evolved. And I don't think that we give ourselves space to evolve anymore. We don't give each other space to evolve or become better people. Mm -hmm. So one effect that it has on art is that it keeps us from writing honestly because we're right. more interested in appearing to be good people than actually being honest about the flaws we have and then doing the work to correct them. Yes. Right? Mm. So... You know, that's one thing that I push back against in, in my life and hopefully in the work. And going back to this, to Brinsley in particular, mm -hmm. and I think I touched on this in the poem as well, you know, we celebrate a Huey Newton, we celebrate a Nat Turner, right? Right, Denmark Vesey, but Nat Turner killed children, mm -hmm. right? I mean, let's talk about that. You know, it's... Uh, Yes, I didn't he know had that. Really? Yeah, yeah. I mean, he went, you know, through ransacking houses, man, and um, everybody had to go. Mm. Everybody had to go. Right. Is he wrong? Is he right? right. I mean, who, you know, who am I to say? Like, mm -mm. stakes are high. Mm -hmm. Stakes are high. So when I see somebody like an Ishmael Brinsley, look, I'm 49 years old, and you don't get desensitized, but it just right. it's like the pain becomes a constant, right? right. You get used to the pain mm -hmm. of hearing new names, of seeing new videos. Mm -hmm. And part of the reason, you know, that I think that we carry this rage within us is because we, we never feel... Where, where's our Nat Turner? Where's our Huey mm -hmm. Newton? Where's, you know, Malcolm X. Um, our Malcolm X even, right, right? Right, And again, you know, I look at movies like The Butler or I look at uh, where mm -hmm. there's a, a central character who's been wrong his whole life. And in the end, he forgives all his wrongdoers. I don't think it's healthy to keep all that bottled in. Mm -hmm. So in, in the poems, I try to make room for the other side of it, the darker side of us, mm -hmm. because it's there. I think that that's like brilliant, but I think that for me, I don't really go into it too deeply, but I make a connection to, and we've been covering the topic of toxic masculinity, mm. um, and it just pops up for me so clearly, especially when we're talking about Brimsley. I, we can place a judgment on him, mm -hmm. but at the same time, like you said, there's nobody really telling his story. Right. There's right. nobody really giving light to what right. his anguishes mm. and what he's been experiencing mm -hmm. and how he feels and what led him to these points because all we're doing is following the storylines we're not really like delving into the nature of you know we we don't we don't shed light on what the whole man we don't say like oh we, we're not following this timeline of when he was younger like all his whole life is surmised as this act now mm. yeah it's, yeah and it's just there and everybody is going to remember him for that not mm -hmm. anything else. And that's where I think the conversation, especially when it comes to men, I think as we're talking about this, you know, there's no sensitivity to 
our foundation, to our origins, you know what I mean? And to, sure. to what constitutes or what makes up a man in this case. It's just once you get out of the boy phase, you go to the man phase. If you mess up, that's all it is. Your ticket is written for you and you're out of here. So yeah, it goes. absolutely. Yeah. And just thinking about an alternative narrative, right? So like what, what you were saying, Owen, otherwise nobody's telling his story. And But here you are in your book, absolutely. which Don't is powerful. And, and, you know, thinking about rage and complexity, talking about Etheridge Knight, you know, in your first collection, your poem, Flowers for Etheridge, honors the poet Etheridge Knight. You brought flowers to his grave in Indianapolis. Yeah. Um, I found this to be an incredibly powerful poem, and I love the way it was in conversation with Larry Levis's poem, Those Graves in Rome, from his collection, mm -hmm. Winter Stars. Yeah. Could you talk a little bit about how some of your work is in conversation with poets who have come before you? Absolutely. You know, it's it's really cliche to you know talk about the shoulders you stand on, right? But, you know, there are a lot of people who've been putting in the work ahead of us, right? I don't know. It's, it's just a way of me paying homage. But also, in that form in particular, there's just a lot of connections. So my father is from Indianapolis, and he fought in the Vietnam War, after the night fought in the Korean War. My father died of lung cancer, after the night died, I, was it maybe liver cancer? I can't remember. And they just, when I read Etheridge Knight's poems, it reminds me a lot of my father, just the vibe of mm. it. So in this poem, I'm in conversation with Etheridge, but also my father, who is not a writer at all, but wrote two of the most profound lines I've ever mm. read when he was undergoing his chemotherapy. He wrote me a letter, a short show letter, and it read, my hands are not writing so well. Something like, I'm tired, my hands are not writing so well. I hope you can read this or something like that. You know, it just started me thinking about, you know, vulnerability. You know, we talk about masculinity and, mm -hmm. and toxic masculinity, what we learn, what we inherit. There's not somebody really important for me. Larry Levis, uh, from a whole different standpoint, is also very important to mm -hmm. me. But, you know, the thing is, we're wrestling with a lot of these same questions. Mm -hmm. And so I'm looking at their poems and how they wrestled while I'm wrestling, mm. it's almost like I can't help but be in conversation with them. Mm -hmm. So, you know, very often I figure since I'm doing that, I might as well be explicit about it and, and bring them into the work. Yeah, it's powerful. It really is. In the last poem in your new collection, the speaker talks about a silence he still carries. In one of the interviews in Yusuf Kumanyaka's book, Blue Notes, he says, it seems that as contemporary people, we're very fearful of silence. But why? Why does every moment have to be filled with some kind of external vibration coming from some radio or television or some mm. other technological device? I don't mm -hmm. know. But I now realize silence is not an endurance test for me, and it never was. Could you mm. talk a little about the role of silence in your writing life and in your work? Yeah, absolutely. That's a beautiful question. It's vital. You know, and I agree with uh, Yusef 100%. I feel like maybe that's really why we distract ourselves the way we do with all these devices. We're afraid of the silences. I remember speaking of flawed human beings, uh, Louis C.K., he was on a talk show once, and he was talking about how his daughter will never be lonely again because she has a cell phone, right? Like, there's, you know, there's cyberbullying and there's all this, but you have access to someone, even though it's virtual, right? But mm -hmm. you don't really experience the same silences that I guess, like, I don't know if you guys are on my age a little bit younger, but we knew what it was to be lonely, mm -hmm. right? And to be alone. But a lot happens in that solitude. That's such necessary time. That's when you really get to know yourself. You get to think. You get to just, I don't know. I was thinking about today. I remember when I was in California, there was this uh, park close to my house. that had like a little man-made lake in it. Mm -hmm. I remember going 
to the lake and just sitting down and I didn't know anything about meditation or anything, but I remember I used to just love to just be by myself and you could be by yourself then, right? You didn't have always a phone on you. So people, if you, they call your house, you weren't home, you just weren't home, mm -hmm. right? I'm at the gym, up the library, I'm sitting by myself and you really were able to sort things out. I think it's vital, man. I think, you know, for artists and just for human beings, mm. it's just a vital, vital part of life, man. You got to sit in, in silence and in solitude. And even when it hurts, especially when it hurts, mm -hmm. you know, go through it. I think it's more so the pain of silence or the pain. It feels like it's like it's nothingness, mm. right? It's more to me. It's like not wanting to do it is like, you know, an avoidance of self. It's like, yo, yeah, absolutely. You know exactly what, I mean? what it is. You just yeah. constantly like, oh, I don't, I don't want to deal with what I know I got to deal with. Yeah, and that's to me what I think sitting in silence is. But if, you, like you said, it's it's tough. But when you do, it's rewarding. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? It's mm -hmm. very rewarding because it forces you to connect with like humility, be humble. You know what I mean? There's a lot of connectivity that's there when you you just shut your mouth and mm -hmm. shut mm -hmm. off everything around you and just kind of just sit there and absorb what you need to absorb and just listen you know i mean we were talking about toxic masculinity before right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. i think if a lot of us just sat down and just thought about the way we move through the world right ideas of masculinity that we've inherited mm -hmm. most of them without us even knowing it and the harm we've done mm -hmm. with that the world will be a hell of a better place but mm -hmm. it takes that sitting down being still and like you said just shutting up mm-hmm so real it is it's a it's it's a real it's a real like i think that like it's nothing more real than just being you know in your own space that's it there's you can't fake it you know what i mean mm -hmm. yeah you can't fake it there's no faking isolation it's, mm. that's really what it is can't fake that yeah i wonder if um zen buddhism has any role in your writing life or in your you know the way that the way that you are in the world with your art it just feels like in your poems there's a willingness to step away from the self and imagine you know mm. both reimagine your own memories and your own experiences but also to have a great empathy and compassion in terms of being able to and making the effort to inhabit another human and and i feel that and i wonder if you could speak to that not zen buddhism per se i've studied various religions usually very topically over the years buddhism is something that i kind of dabble with decades ago but i don't really can't really say that i have enough of a handle on to speak intelligently about it now but my religion i'm a santero i got initiated to obatala about seven years ago and part of my initiation process was to spend a year and seven days basically off the grid though there's a process where you have to go through a whole year and seven days dressed in white you don't really go out you're not supposed to be on social media you're not reading newspapers you're not watching tv for a big part of that time so that discipline stayed with me even beyond the year and seven days I won't say I'm not as socially engaged because when we think about social engagement, we think about social justice, but I mean it in terms of like social media and things. I'm, I'm not as involved, let's mm -hmm. say, with that, right? It really taught me how to be in solitude and how to be still, right? Mm -hmm. And I think it all goes back to that that stillness. And I think that is where a lot of the other things you're talking about, Zach, comes from, you know, mm -hmm. the, the imagining and, and the interrogating memory, because that's really what a lot of the book is about. You know, like you look at the epigraphs, 
before we even get to the poems, you know, I, I quote Larry Levis, where he says, I know this isn't much, but I wanted to explain this life to you, even mm -hmm. if I had to become over the years someone else to do it. And then Henry Dumas, you're lying, said memory. You're asleep, said forgetfulness, right? Mm -hmm. So this idea that what we think are memories very often are fictions that we've created about ourselves in order to live with ourselves, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. But again, these are nothing that I, you know, I set out to write or set out to think about. You know, it's just that when I allow myself certain silences, these are the things that come to me. So powerful. That's dope. That's really dope, man. I'm, I, I know I'm moved by your poems. I'm, I'm really moved by them. Like they're very, I'm not a, a poem reader. I think it to me, it's just like a lot of them, maybe, well, like you said, those poems were probably for me, but I, I feel right. like this is where I'm, you know, I'm making, I'm able to make connection. But I think a lot of it has to do with the content, obviously, but it goes a little bit deeper than that because it becomes more vivid. So it's, mm. it kind of sticks on you a little bit. And then you're like asking questions and like you kind of challenging your own thought process too. So Yeah, thank you. And you know, you, you were talking poetry a witness earlier, man. Like I came to poetry pretty late in life, man. Like I started writing seriously when I was almost 30, right? But I was an MC since I was 11 and mm. a fan and a student of hip hop that whole time. So my first poets were poets of witness. I'm talking about Melly Mel, mm -hmm. right? I'm talking about Karis One. I'm talking about the storytellers mm -hmm. um later on you know we get people like nas and whatnot mm -hmm. and what i'm trying to do in the work is really a lot of what they did you know the vivid detail oriented mm -hmm. storytelling like the way nas will paint a picture yeah right you know new york state of mind where he's talking about going to the building lobby and it was filled full of children probably couldn't see as high as i be yeah i mean it's just so so vivid with his words he's painting a picture mm -hmm. melly mel shows you the broken glass everywhere right mm -hmm. like you see these things so when i started writing poems that's one thing i said to myself that i was going to to do and, and bring into the work yeah and i think you said somewhere that with freestyling you know 90 percent of what you put out you could discard and then 10 percent you keep and mm -hmm. then you know something like that with the writing as well and just staying humble with it in terms of being willing to revisit it again and revise and throw out and fine tune yeah you know, I think about like somebody like Tupac, man, with all these songs that came out posthumously. And I cringe on his behalf because he may not have wanted that to see the mm -hmm. light of day, mm -hmm. you know? Right. I mean, that's the process. You create, you create, you create. And, right. you know, what you feel that you're comfortable with putting out there, you put out. And the rest right. of it, it's not meant for everybody. So, you know, it's the same thing with me. You know, I'm writing these poems, these lines. Most of it's garbage. Every now and then, I come back to something, I revise mm -hmm. it, and I can shine it up and make it something that I feel okay sharing with people. That's powerful, man. Man, thank you. But I'm glad you guys have me on. I, I was listening to the one with the brother talking about um, the history of the police. David yeah, that, that, yeah, man, that, that was crazy. That was yeah. Crazy. Wasn't yeah. it? Yeah, number man. <laughs> yeah, that was incredible. Wasn't man. it? Like he what just, a, he shocked us, shocked me with that. What an incredible uh, writer and human being he is. Yep, man. Yeah, yeah. and I went. I had to go look up some of the, you know the stuff he was talking about. You know the sources. I was like, man, like it just it just really blew my mind wide open. Mm -hmm. You know, especially with all this talk about you know defunding or abolishing police and what that means. You know, like he really brought us a, a new wrinkle to the conversation. Yeah, he really did. <laughs> He caught me off guard. I was stuck. I mean, to be carrying <laughs> to be carrying that kind of story from generation to generation, and then giving it to all of us, you know, mm, I mean, mm. just so powerful. Yeah. So yeah. So John. So thank you so much for joining us tonight. Man, thank y'all for having me. I really enjoyed this. Really enjoyed this. Thanks a lot, John. Really, man. I enjoy your work. I do. Yeah. Going to continue reading it too. 
Yeah, for the rest of my life. Yep. Man, thank y'all so much. And look, you know, there's family out there thinking of Wooly Perdomo, Reginald Dwayne Betts, I'm thinking of Ahmad Jamal Johnson, mm-hmm. Yesenia Montilla, Aracelis Girmay. I mean, there's, you know, we're, we're out there, you know? Yeah, we'll, so, we'll know, be reaching out. Yeah, yeah. So if you, if you like this, you know, read up on them too. Yeah, no doubt. Absolutely. All right. Thank y'all, man. All y'all right. be good. Thanks, right. you too, man. Two now. All right, peace. Join us next week for part two of our conversation on reparations. As a disclaimer, Zach and I don't pretend to speak for all white or all black people.